And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast has a Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome to my podcast. Today, I have a very special episode with a former classmate who is going to remain anonymous. Uh, he, I, I met him when I, when I was in my MFA program at Sarah Lawrence College. I did an MFA in my late 30s. I'm 40 years old now, so it wasn't that long ago. But in my late 30s, I went back to school, and my MFA program at Sarah Lawrence was focused on creative writing. And this is one of the students that I met there. Uh, one of the few people I actually got along with, who I saw eye to eye with, who I felt like I could just talk to and, and I could stand hearing him talk. Uh, it's a very rare thing when I can stand to hear people talk. And so that I knew there was something special about this person. And so when he reached out to me, I was very happy. He actually emailed me and he said, hey, I had listened to your podcast with David Hollander, David Ryan, loved it, loved to be on. I said, I'd love to have you on, man. And so we finally did it. It's a, we kind of go back and forth a little bit. It's just kind of about creativity, the creative life, the creative process. And I think you can apply a lot of our conversation to just about any medium. We talk a lot about writing and I talk a lot about filmmaking. But if you're a visual artist, if you're a painter, if you're a graphic designer, if you just love to create for the hell of it, I think some of the philosophies and ideas here can absolutely apply to you. And so the name of this episode is simply Creativity Across Disciplines. Enjoy. Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. I sh- this is the one like moment that I can actually shut the phone off physically, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Yeah, I, uh, I I get you there. That's that's a big thing. Uh, I think that I've been sort of figuring out nowadays. But um, you're saying that that you were. Um, uh, working on is you already had this this thing drawn? Oh yeah, so 
um, at the start of the pandemic, I I went on this rampage of just getting banging out all of these drafts for all these projects I've had doing for like twenty years, and this was one of them. And it ended up kind of organically becoming an outline for a thirty-seven chapter graphic novel. Okay. We're talking over a thousand pages, <laughs> and it, it the draft exists in these massive binders. There's like five binders of panel outlines for each page plus a script for each page and it looks sort of like a a stage play okay and each panel has a description for it so now what i'm doing is i have this 11 by 17 vellum which is what typical comic books are drawn on and i'm basically pan I'm, i'm mapping out all the panels for every chapter and i'm doing some level of illustration when it comes to scenery because I can do scenery. But then I'm doing stick figure placement for each character. And what I'm going to do is once I've made a lot of progress in laying out all of these chapters, I'm going to hire an artist to help me come up with some sort of template for each character and each key location. Um, and then use those. I mean, we're talking a massive production process that I predict will take at least three to five years. So <laughs> I'm in like I'm still in the early stages of this thing. But my task is really just to have the thing developed and written so that when I do hire a penciler and an inker and a colorist, the direction is there. Like I yeah. don't have to explain anything. They can look at the panels, they can look at the script, they can look at the concept art and know exactly what's supposed to go where. I've never done a graphic novel. This is the only way I could think to do it. <laughs> because I'm very much, I'm not a guy who can just be like, all right, just do six panels and have this be the progress. I need to know exactly what's in every single one. And I have yeah. to dictate what's in every single one. Yeah, get kind I'm, of like that. Um, yeah, you, you, you want to see that vision, you know, bloom as much as you originally intended it, kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I get that. Have you read? Um, I think Alan Moore did a book on writing comics. I haven't read any of his uh, stuff other than some of the comic books he's actually written. Yeah. So obviously Watchmen, and then I have From Hell here, which I yeah, think that's I, him. I, I can see V for Vendetta on your shelf. I think right uh, in the left hand corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> This one is, is a strange one. This is called On a Sunbeam. On a Sunbeam. It's Never like, I mean, it's about as art house as these things get. It's like really interesting. Oh, I'm going to have to write that down. I, are we recording right now? or? Yeah, we're. I, I, I do it right away. Oh, okay. Um, All right. <laughs> just let me know like, if you want something chopped. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's all good. But yeah, On this is sunbeam. like my graphic novel show. Nice. I, I, are you? Do you read uh, manga at all? No. Or, uh, haven't gotten into it. I haven't been able to. Oh, it, okay. I I feel like I need to make a recommendation then. Uh, okay. Have you ever heard of a uh, Jinji Ito? No. Uh, he's a uh, he's a horror manga writer. Um, he has this book called uh, Uzumaki, that is uh, the entire thing is basically this town becomes obsessed with like the notion of spirals, and it's like body horror and just just 
some of the most horrifying drawings you'll ever see. Okay, it is, can, can you it's spell amazing. It? Yeah, it's uh, U Z U M A K I. Okay, I'm gonna look that up. Yeah, I like I, recommendations for graphic novels because uh, I don't. I find those are the hardest. Like, I, I'll go into these stores, and it's almost always superhero. Typical American level superhero. <laughs> so when I can be recommended something that is that I've never heard of, I'll definitely pounce on it. Um, and Sunbeam, that's a talkie. Like it's set in space and all that. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be. It's a talkie. Yeah, it, it's more about <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I think yeah, like you said, like an art house, like more less less, less punching people in the face and and more kind of getting to the heart of you know, what somebody's going through or yeah, what have you. Um, and that's something that I, that I want to see more of actually with this, this medium, because I don't think it needs to be relegated to action. To be honest, I, I feel like that's, that's personally what I want to see in science fiction fantasy, like not even in graphic novels, just in terms of fiction too, because I mean, I like, I, I don't get me wrong. I love like that pulpy kind of, you know, Oh, the whole universe is at stake or, you know, if it's a fantasy novel, Oh, you know, the whole world is going to be destroyed by the evil one, you know, what have you like, I, I, I love that type of stuff, but at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of room for other things. And I mean, I, I guess there is because I mean, like Epic fantasy, you know, kind of goes into like that whole thing. And I think space opera kind of does and things like that. But I, I find it really interesting to see like, you know, um, actually, have you ever read anything by uh, M. John Harrison? He's uh, he's this really great science fiction writer. He did, he's kind of part of like that new wave science fiction movement. Um, but he wrote a couple of fantasy novels that are all uh, they're It's like a series called uh, Vericonium. Um, I just read them over the summer. And uh, the third one, I think it's called In Vericonium. It, it's basically just all about this artist in this fantasy city. You know, and like, I love that type of stuff. Like I, I, it's like a, like a, a consular roman in a fantasy setting, which is like, I love, like, I just find that so interesting to sort of have that setting influence sort of the characters and sort of influence that plot instead of having it be, you know, about some epic struggle, some huge battles, everybody's fighting, uh, some sort of political intrigue where everybody's plotting behind the throne. You know, uh, it, it's just cool to see that other, side of things um and sort of take you know i think a lot of those literary conceptions i guess and and bring them to you know more uh so-called like genre uh tropes i guess genre settings um yeah i um before i did my mfa i did a film called death in life which i'm now i'm now making a prequel to in graphic novel form as well which is actually further along than this thing I was just talking about. Um, and it's all set on this city on a planet far from Earth. But they're all humans who migrated there. So it's okay. set in the future. And actually the, the novel, the prequel novel is called Future. And it's, it was meant to be this art paradise. But they fucked up the city planning so bad that mm-hmm. everybody who moved there are so distracted by sort of the lack of feng shui or whatever, that nobody's creating anything. 
And the, the mystery is why. Why is this what was supposed to be an art paradise in space completely unproductive? <laughs> yeah. And it's just about uh, the artist mentality, really. It has nothing to do with space other than yeah. the visuals. Yeah, I mean, but, but I think, I mean, like, maybe I'm just sort of reading into that in a different way, but just sort of um, almost like a bureaucratic type of thing, too. Well, not exactly like... Um, Sort of like the littlest little thing that that you can point at as an excuse, yeah. you know, to to not to not do your own little thing. Well, in uh, in the in the original film, the bad guy's the city planner. He's <laughs> the guy who invents the super blocks and the grid and yeah. sort of a commentary on the housing projects here in New York. There's these super blocks without community, uh, without access to community and all that. And yeah. So. Um, he, yeah, the bureaucracy is totally the bad guy here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like kind of just, you know, I mean, Kafka in space, you know, almost. It's like um, how, how much great art was sacrificed because we had to sit down and do our taxes in April. Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I was just uh, I just got a text from uh, one of our, our friends from uh, grad school. Do you remember by any yeah, chance? Yeah, because um, we, we've been texting back and forth and uh i i only read a little bit of his because i was i i needed to jump on here and uh he was saying that like he uh he's working like some job i think writing articles or something like that and i've heard from uh if you remember uh i think she's doing the same thing she's working as a copy editor um and like all of these you know people who are amazingly talented writers are are taking these jobs in writing and i and i'm like in my head i'm like oh like, I, 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 I get why you'd want to do that. And I think I wanted to do that. But then I kind of realized that, like, you're going to have no headspace for your own creative pursuits. Yeah. Um, like, actually, before I, um, before I came to Star Lawrence, because um, I, I dropped out of uh, a previous program. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about that before I, I i used i'd gone to the new school for like a semester at, in their mfa program and i i left and um in sort of my year off because i was kind of reapplying um i had an interview with uh you know like one of those companies that um they basically like companies will hire these people to write articles for their own websites um, and it was, it was just like something like that, but they only paid by the article and you, you know, you, but you still work there, but they only paid you monthly, like all together in like one lump sum. And so I, I was like, you know, on, on one hand, I'm like, okay, I get paid to write. Like, that sounds amazing. But think about that. Like you're, you're only getting paid per article and you're not getting paid very much per article and you only get paid once a month. So you don't really have any regular income unless you basically just burn yourself out. And I'm like, I, I need to do, you know, my own writing. Like, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I get, I get offered paid writing gigs all the time, more than anything. And I've never accepted one because of that reason. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's valued enough. And I'm a guy who has to put a, a lot of mental power into something before I deliver it. Yeah. I'm not going to burn I, myself out for somebody I, who's. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like if. You know, I, I think for me, like, it's, you know, it, I mean, I, I really haven't gotten any offers, but like, I feel like for me, it'd be like a per case basis, because I, I think there's probably something out there that would be really interesting to take on. Or, I mean, like, I know um, during that time I was writing for like a music blog, uh, like the heavy metal 
blog and, um, you know, working, I did probably two articles a week, maybe a little more at that time. And I was proofreading for everybody too. And so like, that was a lot of fun. Like, I think that's the biggest thing for me personally is just like writing is fun. Creating stuff is fun. And, you know, I, I want to spend as much time doing that as possible. And I don't want to have to use that same energy for, you know, to, to pay my bills, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I feel the same way, not just about writing too, but like also about filmmaking. I got really sick of making films for other people because mm. that, that's something that I've always done even before tackling the writing part like, of my like, life. Like commissions like for like businesses or yeah, just... Yeah, everything. Um, so I'll be brought on to direct some corporate stuff, some commercials. Sometimes filmmakers want somebody to come in and kind of run their productions for them because they don't know how to do it. But sometimes it's really good money and i can't resist but sometimes it's just like it's not worth the creative energy like i'd yeah. rather reserve it for the, for the stuff i'm already doing because in yeah. the end that stuff will pay off hopefully down the road um, yeah i mean i i i also i mean i i'm in agreement i i just wonder whether um i think sometimes uh i i think sometimes the, there might be some opportunities that could be missed you know that could be you know a great collaborative opportunity that's something i really I think if if I've learned anything over the time since I've since we've graduated, it's that I I need a community. And, you know, part of being in a community is being able to collaborate with people and to be open with people. And I'm I'm not saying that you aren't um open to that. I, I'm just, you know, I, I'm just sort of looking at my own uh, yeah. <laughs> my so own foibles. I you know, I used to be in great a great deal of fear about missing out on something. Mm. Like, what if I don't notice this? And what if this ends up working out and I don't do it? But I don't do that anymore because, one, I've, I'm 40 years old now, and I've kind of figured out how to read a situation. Mm. I mean, I was offered recently an, what on the face looked like the perfect gig to run a full-blown production creative production studio in manhattan have access to all the resources for both my film work as my podcast as well as the stuff they were doing but as i dug a little bit deeper and i realized that i would have 100 percent been alone in this the people behind it didn't know what they were doing that there was uh there was question on on whether or not they were supposed to be in that building to begin with. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't find any information about like who owned the building, were they and so like it just became a thing where like, well there's too much mystery, they're not being straightforward with me. And so then I can turn it down. I had to turn it down because it just it was almost too good to be true. Yeah. And and I found that that doesn't exist. Too good Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh-huh. But Did um it, I, yeah. actually when I in the middle of Sarah Lawrence, uh, my time at Sarah Lawrence, I was, I was looking for a job and, um, it was one of those, um, I was looking on like for like tutoring online sort of thing. And like, I came into that whole, like, you know, so good, like too, too good to be real sort of thing, you know, because it was like, Oh, set your schedule. We'll pay you, et cetera, et cetera. And like, it just turns out that, uh, you're waiting around on your computer for hours to yeah. see if anybody shows up who actually needs tutoring. And even if, you get to that point, the students are just going to ask you for the answers to, yeah. to whatever they're trying to learn. So it's, yeah, I did yeah. a tutoring in my undergrad and that's the one thing that 
I realized about that too is like they're not coming to you for any other reason than they just want to be given the answers. Yeah, I mean, I I, I kind of want to give them give students like the benefit of the doubt uh, in a way, but yeah, I I think sometimes at least in like an online setting, I think it it, it becomes a little more nebulous uh, to figure out someone's intentions. Um, you speaking of communities that, that that's actually been my um my experience with like reddit and stuff like that is is just not being sure of sort of where people are at um with like yeah i, I guess their intentions in terms of like creating um because i i mean i was trying to put like a subreddit together of you know writers who were kind of interested in more experimental uh stuff and you know just i i, I guess you know and i you, you've talked about this a little bit in your uh, episode with David Hollander and I think with David Ryan that, you know, sort of the, the best experiences that you had in your time in grad school were being able to converse with your peers mm-hmm. and, you know, have, uh, you know, th- these conversations that were kind of expanding your mind as opposed to sitting in the middle of a writing workshop and being told what part of your story is bad. Um, you know, like, and so I, I was trying to, you know, garner that, you know, trying to grow, grow that type of mentality on Reddit, you know, because a lot of really, I, I, maybe I just haven't found the right website, but a lot of writing tools online are more geared towards the, that peer review and like that writing workshop format, which is in some ways really helpful, but in other ways, when you want to talk about how you're writing, you know, in sort of your process and things like that, it, it, you know, that kind of gets pushed aside in, in favor, you know, it's always product over process. Whereas I, I, I feel like the other way around kind of is, is more rewarding in a lot of ways, but I, I, you know, I was, I was trying to build this community and um, people were just really obsessed with, you know, not really talking about why they did something or how they did something as much as they were just kind of trying to, take the writing and just shove it in everybody's faces you know it it kind of reminds me of of sometimes of of what grad school has kind of turned into of just like oh publishing is the most important thing uh when it really isn't um you know (laughs) so well for the grad school that's their sort of currency oh yeah these graduates who are published under penguin or some bullshit publisher yeah uh, I'm going to burn so many bridges on this podcast. <laughs> but um, the thing is, is I've always been mystified by the people who thought page count mattered. Like I remember sitting in the class that we had, the craft class we had together. It was a speculative fiction class. Yeah, with, uh, with Paula Farge. At one point I walked in in the morning and there were people debating about, like they were like competing almost in conversation. All over the weekend I did this many pages. <laughs> and in my head I'm like, I bet none of those pages matter for shit. Like, what's the quality of those pages? If if twenty pages was your goal, yeah, I'd rather just write a paragraph that just blows my mind rather yeah, than I mean, twenty pages. I I wonder though whether those people, you know, because I, I I think there are a couple different ways to kind of even approach generating writing in the first place. Um, and I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, kind of go in with an idea and, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, like you said, like, and I think that what you said really rings true there is that like, oh, if you're going to spend like 20,000 words writing a story that only needs to be like a quarter of that, like that's kind of 
a waste of time in some ways. Um, I know personally, like I do a thousand words a day, but I don't really do it towards anything in particular. It's more just, you know, kind of just pulling out of your butt, you know, in a way, just, just kind of riffing, uh, just to like it, I, I look at it as like, um, I, I, I kind of think, do you remember, did you ever read, um, Billy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as a kid? Yeah. The Roald Dahl book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, like the, Charlie, the, right? Charlie. Yeah. Charlie. Tra- it was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I just think of it because, um, there's a section in the book where Charlie would, you know, he he would get a Wonka bar every year for, for Christmas or no, I'm sorry, for his birthday. And he would make it last like months by just taking a little nibble of it at a time. And I kind of do the same thing where just like, if I have a project that I'm really working on, like, I'll just take that little nibble and just do a little bit every day. Like, that's how I tend to work on stories that just, you know, it'll come out of this daily writing or what have you. But I, I think that like having, you know, if I spent like 20,000 words on that, you know, like I, the, the word count itself is, is extraneous. It's not really the point It's more just getting there. It's more practicing, you know, and I feel like most of my stories have come out of that as a result, but, but, but again, th- that's just me. I think a lot of people kind of go in with an idea. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that there are some people who are going to be like, well, I, I write 20 pages a day and. <laughs> unpublished you know but like the point is it's the practice not the exact amount of pages um yeah one of the things that i fell into because i used to think that uh, to me um when i when i i guess what i was trying to get to when i mentioned it was the competition aspects of it seemed amateur to me and one of the things that I really appreciate that I came into almost around the time that I, I went back to school, I went back to school in my mid thirties, uh, was I no longer felt the need to do that. I no longer felt the need to publish it. I no longer felt the need to get an agent. All that, all that stuff that I had in my brain when I was younger kind of went the way of the Dota when I figured out finally how to write, Mm. um, Knowing how to write and knowing how to write are two different things, right? So, <laughs> so, um, what's the best way to put this? Well, you were saying initially that you like to dabble, you go in a little yeah. bit, leave it, go in again later, a little bit, leave it. Yeah, that's my favorite way of writing. I've been working on a novella that way for like four years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're talking like really short novel. Um, and when I, when I take that approach, I find the stories surprise me more. And, and that's one thing that, um, I don't hear enough writers talking about is the need to be surprised. I need to be surprised by the final thing. I need the final thing to always be, and this applies to my film work as well. I never thought that I could do that. I never thought that that was a story that was in me. Case in point, um, uh, I started this one novella about a guy who kind of comes into some some bit of magic where he can seduce anybody he wants. It was meant to be a tongue-in-cheek Bukowski-ish, like, raunchy thing. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to make a ton of money off this, and all these idiots are going to buy it. But then it sort of evolved into an alien abduction thing where they're like, you're not allowed to have that power. And so now the whole final third of it is him 
kind of being taken down by an alien civilization who's sort of where it, it reveals that we as humans are under the thumb of management, so to speak, <laughs> and that he fucked everything up by by figuring out this magic. Uh, and um, I don't know, like had I rushed to finish it four years ago, it wouldn't have evolved into that. And I don't know if it's done and I don't know if I'm keeping that, but if I wait another year, what could it possibly evolve into? It's this, mm. like, this organic experimentation thing where if the final thing is just a mishmash of all the drafts, that's cool too. Like yeah. that was one idea I had when I was in a meeting with David Hollander and I had pitched to him this idea. What if I took and just published all the drafts of the same short story? It's just a book of the same short story in every variation that has yeah. ever existed. And and that's what I'm more interested in. I don't care about the polished work. Yeah. See, I, that's so funny. I, I, I'm i the same way. Like, I that's something I've been thinking about a lot is, is sort of like the messiness of what like art can do, you know, like, because I mean, I, 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 you know, I actually do a lot of music um, as well. And um, I think there's, you know, a big trend of, you know, people are using like Ableton and, you know, all of these, you know, DAWs to, you know, create all these works. And I, I, I love the stuff that people create, but I feel like whenever I use that stuff, it's always, I can never get anything done. But what I do now is I just have like a, I have a modular synth that I just, patch up from scratch every single time and just kind of wing it and just improvise and just what comes out is is messy it's it, it's it's very like uncouth in a way it's it's very unpolished but i love it like i love how it comes out and it's that's kind of the same thing with with my writing that's that's kind of what i like to do is not worry too much about making sure that you know i'm i'm doing some sort of don like every single word is perfectly picked out and placed in the sentence you know but while that while that can have a lot of it, it, that that can be a very beautiful outcome but i i feel like i i just want to get on to the next thing sometimes too but yeah like that's definitely a big thing is like and i i think with you know with publishing you know it's you you're kind of inviting things to be too perfect almost yeah yeah. Well, I mean, that's the same thing with every every medium. Um, the moment you intend to have the public pay money for it, you're almost obligated to polish it. Yeah. And I've seen things where you people will release independent documentaries and stuff and end up being sued because somebody paid money because it, for something really low quality. And yeah there's actual legal arguments that go back and forth about that stuff. Like, Oh yeah. I mean, are you, um, are you, are, are do you, do you play a lot of video games or? Um, I don't do video games. No. Okay. Hey, have you heard about, game. have you heard in the news about cyberpunk seven, uh, 2077 or I think mm -hmm. that's the name of the game. So the company that put this out, they, this, they, they've been um, talking about this for years, you know, really just uh, gearing up really, creating a lot of hype you know Keanu Reeves is attached to this video game and stuff like that and like he came out at like I think one of the like one of the video game awards and just did like a whole thing you know it, it was I mean, people were really pumped for this thing um and when it got released last year uh it was essentially unfinished uh and it was so full of glitches and to the point that it was almost unplayable 
and people just really like I, I I think the the developer ended up getting sued um, by their own shareholders because of just the lack of finished quality. And see, like I I I guess that's a different circumstance than what we're talking about because you know we're, we're talking about like you know we're, we're, let's face it we're we're kind of low level you know we're we're, we're not spending a million dollars developing a video game here and we're not getting Keanu Reeves attached to play it and you know things like that we're not spending five years developing this thing and then having it come out like this you know it's it, it's just interesting sort of that level of uh you, you know what like money talks i guess in that way yeah it sounds too like there was a bit of um i forget the word slips my mind right now but um the they were almost too confident and they released it thinking it was going to be a hit no matter what happened. Oh. It's almost like that Star Wars presumption. Hey, we oh, could yeah. put horses on spaceships. We're still going to make all this money. Yeah. Like... This is going to sound completely pretentious. Um, but I I almost think of myself as a musician who writes in a way. Um, just because like I, I, I love the story that I can read, you know, that, that, you know, I'm telling, but I also love playing with words at the same time. And I love kind of like the messiness and, you know, like, like we've been talking about just sort of that, um, that's something like, like a, like a free improviser would, would have with their own music that they're, they're not worried about being perfect with it, you know, but um, yeah. So like, as a result, I just kind of, I, I, I kind of just, pull and yeah i guess kind of i'm kind of like a dilettante i guess right just you know sometimes it's spec sometimes it's something in between something sometimes it's more literary sometimes it's more experimental um one of the most inspirational people for what i do is has been um a composer in uh new york who just doesn't give a shit when it comes to genre and things like that he will just merge all of this stuff together you know he has a uh he has a group that combines uh you know jewish klezmer music with like free jazz but then he's also doing he, you know back in the 90s he did this project called uh naked city that was you know these uh these just insane compositions of like they would be like a minute long you'd have like hardcore like grindcore metal going on but interspersed with that was like all of these massive tempo changes and genre changes so like they would go from like screaming nonsense to jazz to country to honky tonk to you know to R and B and then right back to metal again and it's like they were able to do this like in real time and stuff. But like I, all, all this to say is like I like like that was really inspirational for me because you know when it comes to my own like media consumption, I'm I'm not really you know I'm not just reading science fiction or fantasy. You know, I'm reading a bunch of stuff, you know, I'm, I, I like to kind of flip flop around, you know, because things get, you know, if for me, if I'm reading the same thing over and over again, you know, it can get a little boring. It's like, it, it's like putting on CDs in my car for me, actually, like I'll put on, you know, I, I'll, I'll try to pick out what I listen to in the car by how opposite it is from the previous album. So like, I'll go from, you know, like Aretha Franklin to you know speed metal and then you know to you know just uh i don't know like, like some dance music or something like that you know just to kind of have that variety 
So all that complicated, complicated answer to a simple question is that I, I, I read a lot of science fiction, but you know, in fantasy and like just speculative fiction, but I, I like just reading uh, a lot of different things at the same time. I always believe that people, if they're in that creative field, should consume everything. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. One, one of the things that I, I, when I went to film school, it was a very technical program, how to use a camera, how to a proper way to record audio, all that shit. And I always thought that film school should have been more about how to look at art. Yeah. Just like definitely. I feel like the same thing with the writing program. There wasn't enough about how to look at and interpret the world and human uh, behavior. Or, yeah. or even just like if there was a mandatory philosophy class, that would have been so <laughs> great for an MFA writing program. Nobody thinks I mean, at that level. You, you ever think that, because I mean, I the way I've tended to think about sort of MFA programs, at least for, for writing, um, I guess the, the, the ones that I've been in, um, often it, it, it seems like a, a lot of that mentality is on the students. Um, and I've just noticed that a lot of, you know, a lot of writers and just in general, um, you know, not only at, at MFA programs, but, you know, kind of on online too, just, they don't seem to care much about how they write as much as what they write. And, um, you know, I, I let like, they care more about the details of a story or, you know, I, I read, I was reading this interview with uh, David Hollander where, you know, someone described it that like literary fiction will sometimes, you know, like authors will use characters to just be mouthpieces for their own political views or what have you. And it's like, that's kind of what, what happens a lot. And it just, it sometimes it just feels like a, like a philosophical diatribe, you know, but it's like in the context of fiction, um, not to say that there isn't uh, any value to that. It, it's just like, I, I, I think that what, what you say is just as important as how you say it. Um, and like, I, you know, I feel like you can make your point even more powerful by, you know, sort of influencing the way you write something. Um, like it's, it's, you know, one, like a musical analogy, it'd be like, um, okay, like uh, there's, uh, there's this musician, uh, Phil Elvrum, he, he does, um, he used to be part of this band called The Microphones. He does, uh, I think a band called Mount Erie now. And he put out this album a few years ago that I've actually never listened to the whole thing because it's so just, devastatingly depressing because it's uh basically just him in his bedroom recording this album just on like an acoustic guitar because it's all about his his wife who had died of cancer um and he's basically just dealing with the fallout of that and the fact that they have a daughter that he has to take care of by himself now and you know just being just completely just blown astray by this loss and you know having that recording having that be really lo-fi you know and just right there you're like you're really hearing him you know just doing his thing right there it's not in some sort of studio like that really lends itself to a more powerful experience in my mind um you know and, and i just think the same thing is true regardless of what medium you work in yeah, yeah i would agree with that did you read did you read Anthropica? Yes, yes. I uh I, I got it when it came out. I was really 
I, I really loved that thing. I was thinking about it a little earlier in, in our conversation because um, sort of the way he wrote that, you know, sort of taking all these different scenes and not really worrying about the connective tissue between the, between them. I really like that a lot. Um, that that's something I, I, I notice a lot of really great writers doing. And I really love the way that works because it's, you know, it, it kind of makes you put in a little more effort almost, you know, in some ways that you kind of have to, you have to connect a to B yourself. Um, but also just, you know, it, it feels a little cleaner in a way. Like it's not, it, it feels less, um, less bloated, you know, because I, I, I think, you know, okay. Like I just read this, um, I just finished this book the other day. It's called, uh, the stars are legion. Um, it's this, it was a really interesting, like science fiction novel. It was like all of this is like, uh, colony ships, but they're all like made out of like organic matter kind of, um, it was, it was really interesting, but a lot of it, like, it felt like a lot of the story was taken up with these, you know, sort of these scenes of characters getting from A to B. Whereas like, if you had just gone to B, like you, you, you would have maybe halved the size of the book in a way. Um, it's just interesting to, you know, I, I, I wonder whether that's like a literary, you know, trope or like, you know, like at least in terms of like cutting that stuff out. Um, I don't really know, but yeah, I would say Anthropica was really, I, it was great. I, I feel like I need to reread it again because I, I, I definitely didn't get all of it. Like I, I, you know, I, I feel like it's one of those books that you kind of need to read a couple times because I, and just because I think you, you always discover a little, like something a little more about yeah, it's it. It's very dense. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I told Dave, but I told Jan, my girlfriend, that I'm pretty sure it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I liked, I really agree with what you were saying about how he doesn't seem to worry about the connective tissue between the vignettes. They just know yeah. what they are and you can find it for yourself. Um, I love that way of writing. Um, that's something also that I think I've been experimenting with a little bit with this monster movie I've been developing. Um, I got so <laughs> many monster projects, movie? bro. Yeah, I got yeah. so many projects. Yeah, I was developing a, a vignetted monster movie. Um, and it was supposed, it started off with, let's just make a cheap monster movie that we can put on Amazon and make some cash off of. <laughs> of course, it's not that easy. Like, I, I started going into, well, what is a monster? Why, why are humans so scared of what goes bump in the night? What if that mm -hmm. thing that goes bump in the night is scared? Like, you know, and it's just like I, I mentally start unpacking all this shit. And then I had to then I started creating all these vignettes where I had different characters reacting differently and seeing the monster in a different light. So then suddenly I'm like in this engineering phase where I'm like, all right, now I got to come up with three different monsters. One <laughs> is cute and cuddly. The other is horrifying and greasy. And the other one is the one you don't see, the one that you think is there or the one that you're spooked by, but you'll never see it. And so now I have this monster movie in pre-production that is almost inspired by this idea of just, again, avoiding putting the connective tissue together. Fuck the audience. 
have each individual one speak for itself and then let people decide whether or not they go together or how they go together. Yeah, like having that that sort of that separation between things, it, it can offer a lot of interesting possibilities. Um, you know, I kind of almost reminds me of, um, do you, did David Ryan ever talk to you about like rhizomatic theory? No. Yeah, because it sounds I like mean, I, something you would talk about. <laughs> it, it is. I, I, to be, to be fair, I, like, I love David, and I, I love the theories that it comes up with. I, I, I understand very little of of any of them. Do, you know, I, I just don't think I'm, I'm on that that plane of intelligence. Well, when David talks about theories and and the philosophies and all that, he's like the best friend. I, I look at him as, as one of my best friends that I'm having a beer with. We're just chilling. He's going to let let things out on me. And then three days later, whatever something that he said that I wasn't thinking about will just pop into my brain, and then suddenly I'm writing. And that's kind of how that's David's role in my life is every couple of years I want to be able to talk to him, and then several days later I'm writing. And I don't know <laughs> yeah. why. I don't know what I, he said, but I'm doing it. I, I kind of get that. Like it's for me, it, it's probably um, much longer than that. It's not even a it's not even a couple of days. Like it's probably years, honestly. That I'm like, yeah. oh crap! Like, he, like that was a great idea. Like, and, like I remember I went through some of my old notes uh, a few months ago when I was when I was moving, and I was like, oh wow! Like I I need to keep this around. <laughs> like you know, why didn't I get this the first time? You know, uh, you know it's. It's so fascinating, sort of the, the things he comes, you know, uh, to class with. Um, it's a, it, you know, what's what's really funny is that I almost didn't take his class. Like, I, I well, I was in like I think my my first class with him, like I or my first meeting with him, I, I was like, you know, I, I I find this like interesting, but at the same time, I'm like I I'm not much of a theory person. You know, I don't really. Sometimes it's difficult for me to see like the practicality of theories and and you know that sort of like textual analysis um and, and he's like yeah you you know like you're, you're welcome to stay but i i don't you might not have the best of time in this class <laughs> or something like that like he's being like so nice about it uh you know and i was like dude i, I like i i need to stay now like you know I, I don't know whether it's me being stubborn or just kind of wanting to see like you know kind of like a matrix like how how deep the rabbit hole goes you know kind of kind of thing yeah. um yeah it was it was super interesting just to see what what he comes up well and it's, and he's not even coming up with it he's just like he's able to interpret all of these you know thinkers in in just sort of condense what they've done in and apply it to writing and yeah. like it, like i love that yeah. yeah that's one of the things that blew me away about his craft class was um I mean, unlike all the other craft classes, his was, I, 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 went, I don't know if you took the same one I took, but. I, I, I did a writing workshop with him. Oh, you did a workshop. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wanted to do a workshop, but they wouldn't let me because I took a craft class um, and he was really sought after. But um, yeah, the day one, he's just like, you don't really need to turn anything in. Just hear me talk for the whole semester. And it was <laughs> just literally just a lecture on how to kind of dig deep into the gook of the mind and pull out all that stuff that we're avoiding confronting and honestly after the first day or second day of hearing him talk i started writing 
one of my favorite short stories. I don't really write short fiction. This is a yeah. rare exception, but he got me going, man. And for that, for the last two semesters I was in that program, I just worked on this one story. What, was that the, uh, was that Fritz? That was Fritz. Yeah. yeah that came I, out of like day two of his lecture. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. Yeah. I, I, I remember you, I, I think you brought that in to our workshop because I, mm -hmm. we were in Hollander's workshop, right? Yeah. I think the last semester. Yeah. I, I, I do. I remember that. I remember you, t I, I, you talking about that with David on the podcast, which was really funny. They, they, that you you said you spent like an entire like evening basically just yeah. writing the Until thing like out 1 a.m so yeah. it happened so david seated it in my brain i go out to the Wrexham parking lot i get in the car and i and i hit the parkway and i'm driving upstate because at the time i was uh borrow, borrowing a house in the woods because it was easier to drive upstate than it was to commute to staten island oh god yeah um and like just like side note westchester is like maybe like the worst like location to get anywhere except yeah. for like the city itself so but. i wasn't in westchester though um i was in putnam county which is the next one up yeah and um but i had to drive through all of westchester to get there but i'm on the highway heading north and then suddenly it just hits me the whole fucking story just it popped into my brain whatever he did unlocked it and it wasn't just like little little bits like the whole fucking thing was there and and the moment i got in uh, i heated up some canned meal or whatever and i just hit hit the notebooks because i always hand write everything or hand draft everything uh, yeah uh, uh, and till 1 a.m i was just going through this. it was an evening class so i was probably writing between 8 30 p.m and 1 a.m and Do then i was up the next morning yeah. Do you still uh you still handwrite everything? Yeah. Yeah. See, do you I want to see. Uh... Yeah, they, they, well, it's just that's something I really want to do more. Um, I just, I just don't. I think it's because I can, you know, bang out a thousand words in yeah. like five ten minutes. Well, let me know? show you. Let me. I'm gonna shut off the video feed for a second so I can get yeah. up, and then I'm gonna show you what my notebook looks like because it might not be what you think. So this is the development book for the monster movie so you you basically just do like a notebook per project kind of uh for the films yes okay um and if it's a, a writing project it starts off in a a compilation book yeah because i have so many writing projects that i get bored with yeah so it really has to earn its way into its own book <laughs> I, but, I do that with Scrivener files. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna be not showing this on the podcast, but it, <laughs> it's it's very loosey goosey. So, um, try to find an interesting looking page. I'm not really writing prose though. I'm 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 almost just like using it as a way to get my brain trained into sort of coming up with the concepts i need because yeah. the language is, is is for me it's just the mechanics that i gotta work through it's really just finding all of the ideas that i need yeah but like to, to just kind of like exploding your brain kind of onto the yeah, page it, and, and then and then kind of like sorting it out later it's it's not even writing it's more just coming up with these concepts yeah 
like it's 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 almost like a like like a free association yeah in a way because i what's more important to me is understanding not just meaning because it's a loaded word it it, it's about what are the thousand and one ways people are going to possibly interpret this yeah and then can i think of the one thousand and second way and then do that instead like and i'm not much of a prose writer i i get bored with trying so it's really for me just finding taking these ideas and these visuals like what do stars mean in every culture you know um i'm more intrigued by um I, I was watching this YouTube video recently about th- this ancient sort of telling of a mysterious star that appeared in the sky. It turned out, astronomers figured out that a star went supernova. Okay. And it was a star that wasn't typically visible to the naked eye until it went supernova. But ancient peoples described it in their old writings as a, a mysterious moon-sized star that appeared in the sky, and it was there for six months. Because supernovas, when they supposedly when they yeah. go off, they'll be there for six months and then fade off. Yeah, and that kind of thing intrigues me because that could mean that could be interpreted as so many different things. And so then I'll just go into these pages, I'll sketch out what it might look like, and then I'll write down all of the different meanings that it could take. And somehow in that process, I'll I'll figure out what the scene is. And only in the last minute will I go into the actual writing software. In this case, it's Final Draft. And then I'll bang it out. Boom, boom, boom. It's just the production process, which is the most boring part of it. <laughs> yeah. The best part is the notebook. It's the sketch. Yeah, I, 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 I get that. Like, that, that's definitely like for me, like my least favorite part is editing stories for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I mostly just do short fiction nowadays. But I actually but, consider yeah. writing editing. Like, um, I feel like what I'm doing now is with everything right now is editing Um, just because I've got I spent so much of the pandemic in this wonderfully blissful creative state that now that the world is going back into business, I have to go back into production of everything. Yeah, somehow. And I don't know how, but I do the weirdest thing with with Scrivener where I'll have like you know, like a word and like work in progress document that just has like every single story that I haven't finished that I yeah. don't consider crap. And, and, and just trying to like, is it like sometimes I'll just open up and just look at it and be like, no, not today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's really important to have that daily practice for me to just do it. And I'm finally getting back on track with that. Cause I, I think a lot of people in the pandemic, I think, they kind of started out, I think, a lot like like you did, in the, trying to be in like that blissful kind of, like I can, I have the time to do whatever I want. Finally, you know, yeah. and and then that like kind of just goes away as like just depression sets in, you know. Right. So well, yeah, I've heard that a lot with people. For me, it what it lasted a long time up until one, the the pandemic unemployment payments ran out. That was a big part of it kind of going away because I felt almost treated that like a grant to create. Yeah. But then there is that sort of, well, all this is done to a point where now I need to actually put it into production. Graphic novels written, that has to go into production. The movie monsters, for the most part, written, that's going into pre production. And then 
there's the things that fall into the lap, like the one I have to do in January. Um, yeah. Do you like, have you ever thought about doing, you know, more of like a, like a home production sort of thing or mm-hmm. is, is like, I, I, I guess just trying to like, well, I, 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 I guess it wouldn't work the same way. I, I don't really, I guess I don't really know the exact, uh, you know, parts of this project, but like, um, I don't know, like I just had this idea to, to make like a, a film actually like a kind of like visual component to like an album in a way. Um, but it's not something that I need like a cast and a crew for. Um, it's something that I would just film myself. So and- that's the January project. Okay. Um, only I'm not doing it here. I'm doing it in Virginia. Ah, okay. Um, right. But this this actor reached out to me and we, ha- we actually just did a podcast with, with him, but it's not out yet. Um, he's like, you know, I got access to X amount of acres with these types of buildings. Would you be willing to come down here and just do something? And I'm like, you know what? I actually need to turn out product. And <laughs> I have all these projects that are almost ready to go into production, but they're not going to be turned out for a while. Hmm. Um, and so I said, sure, let me come up with a concept. I came up with a very simple concept that only involves me, him, and a bowling ball and the <laughs> woods. And it's if things work out with the location and we can make it work in terms of just me not having to spend any money whatsoever, I will come down to Virginia and we'll shoot this movie. I mean, there's something to that in terms of like, you know, that sort of idea of um, creative limitations, you know, like limiting yourself like that is, can be so eye opening. Um, Yeah. That's something I like to try to do at times. You know, if I'm, if I have a draft that, uh, you know, or, if, you know, I, I think sometimes I'll get bored with a thousand words or, you know, I want to do it differently. So like I did something the other day where like every scene has to be uh, one sentence. The minute you have a period there, you are going to the next scene. No, n- like no other way. And uh, it, it's just, it's it's interesting to see, you know, sort of what you get out of that. I mean, with like my music too, like, I mean, I, I literally just use this modular synth. I don't use anything else from it and it's so limiting in that way but you end up finding these new ways to sort of connect things and work with things and so you end up you know with something completely different even though you're using the exact same instrument you made for every other recording you've done you know some of my favorite exercises come from just limited concepts i remember one time uh way early on in our program Somebody gave me uh, in one of their lectures. They gave us this that her she said her favorite. She was like one of the guest lecturers, and she said one of her favorite writing prompts was "Stranger in the Kitchen." There's a stranger in your kitchen, and one of my favorite chapters of a novel I've been developing is called "Stranger in the Kitchen." It came out of that prompt. Okay. Um, yeah. It's Definitely so weird like, and obscure it, and simple. Yeah. Just like that, that limitation. Yeah. I, I, you know, that's kind of why I don't like to do, you know, work with something like Ableton or, you know, in some ways it's kind of why I don't like to write a novel because it's just, you're dealing with way too much in, in a lot of ways. And I'm like, I, I just can't get my mind around it. Yeah. I've never finished a novel I've been happy with. I, I understand that. I, I, uh, the, 
so my 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 thesis for Sarah Lawrence was a novel, and um, I liked it. Then I, I remember I I spent um, it was the first time I'd ever not gone home for Thanksgiving because <laughs> I basically just spent the entire time off, just like pretty much from like five in the morning to like five at night, just editing this thing. And like I finally finished it, and like now that I look at it, like a few years later, I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks. <laughs> just like. Like I, I could do this. I could do this differently. I want to do this differently. This thing still has issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is like, I, I just don't even know if I have the energy to go and actually make those edits or not. Cause I think, I think sometimes you just kind of need to like leave that stuff as it is and just move on. Cause I, otherwise you're, you're spending, you're doing a Joyce and you're spending your entire life, you know, writing a single book. I, I come into this conflict of medium. So I have this one novel I've been developing for the better part of 20 years about my hometown in Maine. It's about family. It's about generations. It's, there's a time travel component to it. Um, and it's been developed as a film. It's been developed as a novel. It's been very briefly developed as a graphic novel. But it seems like none of those mediums work. Mm. And sometimes some of the chapters I can get some real solid prose, but then the narrative style doesn't work for other chapters. And so I, I'm honestly like, I don't know if it'll ever get done because I just don't know what the best way to tell the story is. Yeah. I, I, I really get that. Like sometimes, you know, I, I, I like to think that, then like the story kind of tells you how it needs to be written. Um, that's a very romantic view of looking at it. Um, you know, it's something I, I, I wish, I, I think I need to do more because I, I mean, there are definitely parallels uh, all over the art world, you know, like kind of like that whole, like, you know, I, I think the easy one is like, you know, Michelangelo with like, you know, David saying that like, Oh, you know, he was in there the whole time, you know, I just needed to carve him out or, you know, like there's this thing with uh, improvisers that like the rule of thumb is like you to be a good improviser musically, you don't you, you're actually listening to everybody else. And like the best improvisers listen, you know, and then act accordingly. Sometimes um, I feel like that's just uh, art speak and there's not yeah. a lot of reality to it. Oh, the Michelangelo, yeah. like Michelangelo sings, uh, he was in there the whole time or whatever. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just, uh, I get the romance of that, especially if oh, yeah. you're at an art opening and you need something to say. That's the, <laughs> that's what they want to hear. But like, <laughs> I, I swear, like I, whenever I read like a, um, you know how like you'll get like uh like when an album comes out or like when it gets announced, you'll get like an EPK about it or what have you. And the way some of these artists describe their work, I'm like, like yeah it feels like that that art speak that's just like does this make any sense like is it is it just me or (laughs) have you listened to my podcast with the guy from great art explained because we have and i think i have clipped it as well on my youtube channel we talk about art speak and his rule as a curator is when he when it comes to press and write-ups the artists are not allowed to write the press materials because <laughs> they're so pretentious and ridiculous about it. Well, I, you know, I, I've had this conversation with, with um, my friend who I, I do a podcast with and he, um, you know, because 
sometimes we'll, we'll, some of our favorite artists are kind of like you know, they, they, they have that kind of art speak to them. But I, I wonder sometimes whether like the art itself is supposed to be like the message that they're trying to say, like in that they aren't able to properly like elucidate those thoughts in, you know, the form of words that, you know, what they're trying to say is the music. And so, you know, to, to, to try to say it any other way, it's just going to sound jumbled and pretentious. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, yeah. If you wrote a book, that's your that's what you had to say if you made yeah. a film that's what you had to say and actually one of the things i liked about i have mixed feelings about the new york foundation for the arts mostly because of nepo- their nepotism in there but <laughs> when i apply for grants and they say here give us a write up about what you're doing they specifically said at least la- in last year's directions avoid pretentious art speak in so many <laughs> words they're like we don't want to <laughs> hear the bullshit just tell us what you're doing and why yeah <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it, it's it's such a difficult you know road to travel down because you know it's sometimes you know, like, like you just don't know whether you, sometimes you just don't know how to say it you know and like I mean even um you know it's funny with, with with Anthropica like I think that's a great book and I love the blurb for it but the blurb doesn't really match the books in some ways like it, it doesn't in my mind it it. It, it, it like talked about a very small sliver of the overall book in a way, because I think it's, you know, I, I it, it's just difficult to describe a book like that easily because, you know, you have all these vignettes that are interconnected, but they, to just try to describe them on their own being like, Oh yeah, you've got this ultimate Frisbee bro. And you've got like this, you know, uh, the, the, this economics professor who's finding that the earth is running out of resources and, you know, this and this and this, and it's like, you know, I, I guess the story is like, you know, how the, all those pieces mesh, but it, it can be a little difficult to kind of, you know, see what the intent of the blurb is, you know, like that, uh, the stars are legion, that book I finished was, uh, you know, very much kind of a similar thing that it, it, it sometimes didn't feel like it was actually getting to the point of like what the story was actually about <laughs> in some ways. Um, it's well, yeah. I, I feel like with Anthropica, though, Dead Rabbits or Animal Riot, Brian's publishing company, yeah, they were in a really weird position because it's almost like trying to describe Moby Dick. I don't know if you've read Moby Dick, like the unabridged version. I, I haven't. I I've really I need to, especially because, yeah, because because like all the drawings and everything. And, right, but yeah. the simple way the publishers and and now at this point everybody talks about it is the crazy captain ahab and the white whale but I, it's I feel so like much they, more than they that. don't even talk about it like that they're just like oh the legendary novel and it's like yeah that doesn't even say anything <laughs> but what how they I, what a more accurate description is of this is an amazing work of experimental literature that changed american the american literary world forever and the key there is experimental novel nobody ever describes moby dick as an experimental novel but it's 100 percent an experimental novel yeah. it's a fucking weird book the oh, ahab yeah. and the white whale and all that stuff that is such a tiny component of what's there you got a whole chapter that's the craziest sermon you'll ever hear a yeah, preacher or, give I, I mean i always hear about the uh the, the chapters that are just all about like whaling techniques yeah and, and stuff like that or it's... like the guy's obsession with taking like uh i 
I guess the flakes off of fish and putting them in the in his journal, or like it's just like this weird stuff. And but again, if you're a publisher, people aren't going to buy a book if you're talking yeah. about this guy. The narrator has some pretty strange psychological issues. He's really unreliable. His ma- his name might not be Ishmael. He might be lying to you, and there's I mean, every indication that he is. Part of it is <laughs> like, like you, you sometimes have to wonder. Like I, I feel like they're working with like a limited scope. That like they're like you need to just like I, we need to describe this thing in under 500 words. Yeah. You know because I, I otherwise you know I mean I, I I guess you have what you know uh, literary scholars have been doing since Moby Dick came out and just trying to analyze this 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 you know book. You know. Yeah, and. Honestly, Anthropica, it's it's at the level of how the fuck do we promote this to regular people? Yeah. MFA, guys, we're going to read it. We're going to yeah. get what he's doing, uh, mostly. And <laughs> we're, we're going to decide for ourselves whether it's a masterpiece or not. I personally think it is. And I think it's at that level of, of Herman Melville in its own way, in its own genre, in its own era. Um, but... I guarantee you, my sister's not going to like that book. Yeah. My my parents, they're not even going to touch that book. They're never even going to hear about it. Uh, and, and unless they listen to this, which they probably won't. But um, Brian's mission, though, is to get a few of those regular people to buy it so that they can break even, at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the they, for, for sure. For sure. So. Yeah, they... I mean, that's, that's an interesting, you know, topic right there is, is sort of, because I, I think you kind of like the utility of art kind of feeds into that a little bit. And like, I, I think that's like kind of what, you know, a lot of us are going through right now is, is we're dealing with a world that doesn't have, that doesn't have a way to quantify a lot of the work that we do, because, you know, it's oftentimes it's not you know, if it's not, you know, if it's not Star Wars, if it's not, you know, like directly, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of times it's just like, we, we want to put a price tag on it. Like, I think that that's usually how we value things in our world. I, you know, it's worked out kind of okay in, 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 in some respects, um, you know, because you can just say, oh, gold is this much, you know, but I, like, I, when it comes to something like art, it's, it's so, it's so personal to the person who's experiencing it. And it's even more personal as the person who made it. And so to have someone be like, Oh yeah, this is, this is worth doing, you know, like this is worth your time. It's, it's just so it's, it's super difficult. You you just, you just can't quantify that. And so, you know, even though there is not a single person, I think on the planet who I, I probably, who has ever lived, who hasn't had art affect them in some way, you know, even though it's such a universal thing, we still can't get around to the fact that we need it in a way. And, you know, the, the only way to move it forward is to let people keep doing it, you know, and to play around with new ideas. And, you know, like I, I, I think about like, um, I, you know, it's, it's like those people who are like, it feels like every few years people are just like, oh, we need to defund NASA kind of. And, and, or, or like, you know, we, we need to take away funding for, for, for this research or what have you. And it's like, I, I get it. Like the, like, like you're going on the grounds that, oh, NASA hasn't put anybody on the moon in like, you know, 
a while, you know? And so therefore it's not worth it. And it's like, that's just untrue because they're doing a bazillion other things. And, you know, it's just the, the whole point of research is not to discover the utility of something. It's to discover, you know, sort of what can be discovered. And, you know, eventually there is a way to sort of uh, fit that, you know, to, to use that research for something, you know, that can be more useful to the average person. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people have that sort of immediate big reward mentality. Oh, yeah. I mean, I deal with investors all the time and they're the worst because they want turnaround like that. And it has to be obvious and guaranteed. And I'm just like, everything's a process, man. Like, yeah, invest in the process. Eventually, if you stay with it, whatever it is, you'll figure out whether it's useful or not. And, and I do think there's some benefit too, to putting energy into figuring out if something's not useful. We don't have to be on the moon. We were on the moon. There's nothing there. Um, the only benefit at this time I can think of to putting anything on the moon is having an observatory without light, light pollution. So we can better look at the universe. Um, but other than that, like, what's the point? Yeah, but I mean, it, like, like the point is more like, I yeah. But my argument is more just like NASA's doing all yeah, of these. They're other doing things. All, all kinds of things. Exactly, they're figuring out how to fucking let people live up there without having to. I mean, the amount of psychological and physiological issues humans have on the space station, they're solving yeah. all those problems, and people don't realize that we haven't solved those problems. We need NASA yeah. to help solve those problems. Just, but you know. People are, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. And... Okay. It, it, I think it's just like, it's, you know, you, you, you want to feel like something's valuable and, you know, you kind of want to cut it out if it isn't. And the thing is, you, oftentimes a lot of, a lot of these things that I, I aren't, you know, very obviously valuable, like they aren't, they aren't striking you in the face with, with, with their utility, you know? It's, yeah, it, it's much more nuanced than than we'd like to think. Um, yeah, and and people yeah. to generally have to be taught that the world is complex and nuanced. It's not black and white. It's yeah. gray. It's a very gray world. It's a gray universe. It it really is. It's you know, and I even though I believe that, I I even find it difficult to do that at times. It's tough yeah. to. Well, you know, I've been digesting these philosophical discussions as of late about um, this idea that the more we evolve to survive reality, the less we're able to perceive the world, that the universe as it truly is. So mm-hmm. um, we've evolved in a way where we benefit a great deal from perce- perceiving the world as black and white. There's yeah. good, there's bad, they're out to get you, there's food over there. And and by evolving to have that be our second nature, we're unable to see sort of the reality of things, the complexity of things. And we have to stop and think for a moment, okay, the world is a little more complex. There's also little critters over here. I, I, I mean, I'm just sh- shooting the shit, but um, I don't know. It's just, I like, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about that idea of evolution fucked us in one way <laughs> just so we could survive another way. Like, Oh. Yeah. I mean, there are like spiritual thinkers out there who who believe that, you know, sort of we are slowly evolving 
towards, you know, sort of a more of a conscious mindset that sort of the, the, the things that, you know, like that initial need for survival uh, might, you know, we're, we're slowly, we're, we're kind of evolving beyond that in a way um, in that, you know, in, in more of a, like a spiritual dimension in terms of like, you know, we don't need to worry about how am I going to get food that, you know, when in re- like, because I think, you know, I mean, it, I think it could be really easy for me to kind of just dive off into, into that sort of, into that sort of talk for a little bit, but I, you know, just sort of the idea that, you know, what you have, like what you need will be provided, you know, um, that there's no need to worry about it. Um, you know, like Alan Watts has a book called, um, the wisdom of insecurity. And it's like kind of just all about that, um, idea that, you know, we need like our reality is a very insecure, scary place, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad thing. And that, you know, because, you know, with insecurity comes change and change, I think is the ultimate governor of life. And so, you know, it's about being able to embrace that insecurity uh, that I think will end up yielding the best results. Um, but, you know, again, a lot, lot easier to talk about in theory than to actually put into practice. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's almost like you're talking about letting go. Yeah, well, yeah that, that, that's exactly what I was talking about. Because we want to control yeah. everything. We want to know everything. And there's no way to know everything or to control yeah. everything. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's something I, I I have to grapple with a lot of just, you know, knowing that, like, you know, when you see people that you love, you know, going through something and you see them maybe making a decision that is probably going to end up screwing them over in the end or something like that. And there's nothing you can do and there's nothing you should do because you want them to be able to come to their own decisions, you know, and I, I think that's a big part of education is is you know sort of letting people find out for themselves you know instead of because i think i let like our our education system right now is kind of like not about learning about yourself and like actually learning about things it's more like do like know what i told you to know you know well i've always said that the education system seems to be more about making the person into a utility utility exactly which yeah. is like not what it's supposed to be for. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it's it's supposed to be you know the the making of an independent person, you know. But I obviously you know we're dealing with you know a society that needs you know it it needs cogs for the machine, you know. Yeah. So it's it's it it, it like I I feel so cynical and kind of jaded talking about it like that so easily, but like you know it's. Yeah, yeah, kind of the truth in some it ways. It is the truth. Um, we don't need to yeah, dive deep it, into that, though. Uh, yeah. Did you ever? So you mentioned consciousness initially, because that's also a big part of that's the big sort of word that seems to be emerging with a lot of these things I've been listening to. Hmm. Um, what is consciousness? Is it extend beyond the self? That sort of thing. Um, did you, have you ever? listened or read about any of the stories about this place in Utah called Skinwalker Ranch? No. It's this ranch in Utah. In the 90s, this rancher, his cattle were getting mutilated. And there were these spooky, ghostly things that were happening. And he had to get rid of it. He was losing a ton of money on it. 
And this aerospace billionaire from Las Vegas named Robert Bigelow made him an offer and bought it for like $400,000. And then he hired the rancher to stay on. And he turned the whole thing into a scientific research operation for like 10 years or something like that. You can look this up. It's it's yeah. crazy. And I'll send you some podcasts about it too, the ones that I think explain it the best. And they got documentation of weird shit happening. Their cameras being destroyed like systematically, like whatever is there knew how to do it. There were sightings of things that resembled sort of um, kind of like Predator, where you can't really see it, but you you recognize a wave. Yeah, there's a shimmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a shimmer. Yeah. Uh, and But then also orbs that would fly in and out of the ground. There okay. there was some of the, the security guards there observed portals being opened in like bright blue sky daylight on the other side. It was night here. Uh, they would see like a bright blue sky on the other side and things flying out of it and then the portals closing. And this is all documented with this research team that Bigelow sent there. Yeah. Other crazy shit too. I mean, the fucking list. Every paranormal thing you could possibly conjure up, it happened. And then, so the U.S. government says, well, we would like to go to Skinwalker and check it out. And so the Pentagon sends a guy there. Of course, we all know that they're only after technology. If it's alien, you know, they, they don't know. Um, the moment the guy sets foot on the land, he sees this technological device that looks alien. But he's the only one who sees it. And so the guy left and he, he, he made his report. And he's like, Whatever's there knew what I was there for before I even arrived. And it was fucking with me. <laughs> and so out of all this, Bigelow, he didn't get technology for his aerospace company. He didn't really get much of anything tangible. What he ended up doing was dissolving the teams. He sold the, the land. And he immediately formed a new nonprofit to investigate the reality of consciousness. Something hmm. about that whole experience pushed him towards researching consciousness rather than how we would typically want to investigate. Oh, we just want to, yeah, to figure like, out the technology like, behind it. Yeah, like I mean, it, it, definitely, you you would think that somebody in that position would just go immediately to UFO conspiracies and you know turn yeah. into like that David Ike lizard people sort of conspiracy thing. But um, the thing is, is there yeah. was a component of that, but there was also demonic components. There was ghostly components. There was apparitions. There were nightmares. Like they were in the brains of everybody who was there and they knew who was coming and what, why they were there. Like, and everybody there who had experiences would say the same thing. Like whatever experience was tailor made for me, yada, yada, yada. And I can't prove any of it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, you can never prove anything like that. But um, he, they did come out with some interesting stuff, though. That the the mosaic pointed to look at consciousness for the answer, and I think that's fascinating because he yeah. immediately invested in consciousness research. That is, re I mean, I I think the most interesting thing about that is that you you have you know, kind of you know, kind of like a one percenter almost, you know, just sort of taking that initiative towards something that, you know, he's the only is, one. 
Yeah. He's the only one who's acknowledged that one, we're not alone. We never have been. And the fact that we have a multi-billionaire with with defense contracts running an aerospace company, investing millions of dollars into this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, he was the one that for a while had the contracts with the government whenever somebody filed a ufo report with mufon or with the department of defense his contract said that they had to hand over all those reports to him he was the one that was contracted to investigate that stuff <laughs> like he he asked for it he's like i yeah. care more about this stuff than any of you guys <laughs> and, what, it's, it's, what's the what's the name of that um that philosophical thought that was it like you're the only person in the universe in a way it's not at narcissist i can't remember the name there's of a it. few that i don't know the name of it but there's a few that i've heard of where like there's one that's i find fascinating where you are where there's one soul that lives every life oh, so you the, and me are the same person but living we're, we're, i i think uh, we're, we were both in Hollander's class. Do you remember that story that, that one of one of our our uh, one of our peers brought in? That was it was uh, the egg uh, by uh, Andy Weir who, who uh, wrote The Martian. Because he uh, th- 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 that's like that whole story is is like this guy dies and he meets God basically, and God's like, no, I'm I'm you. You have been everybody that has ever lived. You've been Hitler and you've been every Jew that he exterminated. Yeah. and you know and like. The thing is you are growing and you are the universe and like you know when you get to a point you are going to be like a god in yourself and you know it was like this, this like mind-blowing thing where like afterwards you're like oh like like where's the acid i just took you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that kind of philosophy because one it forces you to confront something somebody else put that differently too in in a lecture i was listening to where they're like they did soul searching and they're like, did you know that all that at least some of your molecules were also part of George Washington? And they would yeah. also drop these Gandhi type names. And then, then this person was saying, like, but what really hit it home is when I realized that if all that is true, then some of my molecules are also Hitler. Some of my yeah. molecules are also Stalin. And it's just yeah. like, fuck. Yeah, th- so th- th- that's one of those things. It's just like, yeah, to be on. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? Kind of this is weird, but like, have you ever done um like any of the Myers Briggs uh, tests before? Oh, the MBTI. Yeah, we did a yeah. podcast about it and how oh, it's okay. being misused by uh, HR offices now. Oh yeah, I, I can definitely see that being. I mean, it's it, it's definitely it, it, it's flawed in the way that you can't it's you can't really describe the totality of a person using just a label you know yeah but i but you know have you ever looked up you know famous people with with your mbti type no because like it it, it can be devastating sometimes so like i i've taken it like 20 times i think only once have i not got an infj and i've looked up famous infjs and it's like oh yeah hitler Stalin, like, like, just basically every dictator who has ever lived is like an INFJ, and I'm like, oh no. Well, they're like, they're, oh no, dude. <laughs> so a lot of them have the artist mindsets, yeah, um, and are failed artists, and that's the one warning nobody fucking listens to me about. Stop 
stop fucking with artists and let them succeed because they're just going to be the ones who exterminate you down the road. Like it really is. There's look, when I moved to New York and I always just, I have never really told this story, but I always hated this woman for, for telling me this. She claimed to be an empath and that she could read, she could read people's souls or whatever. And she goes, Eric, but I can't read you. You're empty behind your eyes. I'm like, (laughs) fuck you. You fuck, you have no idea who I am. And I got so offended by it. But she goes, wait, are you an artist? And I'm like, yeah. She goes, that's the problem. (laughs) There's something about artists, like true artists, where they can either be very creative or very destructive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think an INFJ is definitely more of like an idealist type. Like they want the world a certain way. And I think that can be twisted for good or evil pretty fast. Yeah, 100%. With the empath thing, it's I. Uh, I was talking to my therapist yesterday, and we were talking about empaths very briefly. And she was describing. She she pulled out a book that was like on them, and she was like describing all these different things being. And so I'm like, okay, I'm I'm look, listening to this. I'm like, this is, like, is this really real? Or because like a lot of the stuff, you know, if like a psychologist was looking at it, this could be easily be like mis like, cons- like interpreted as uh codependency and like neuroticism. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it, Oh, it's so screwy because well, like, it, like empathy is, is a human condition. It's, it's what it's part of what makes us human. Yeah. So like to, to, it, it, sometimes it just feels like that kind of, um, I hate to use the word, but like snowflake type of mentality, but it almost feels like, like, like an elitist snowflake that it's like, we're all special, but I'm more special than you. Right. Well, <laughs> you know well with this woman, one, my bull, my bullshit detector went off immediately because apparently all the ones she sensed, all the men in the workplace that she sensed as being really wonderful, hearted, open, trustworthy men were all hot. And they were all somehow these really model-like men. And I'm like, are you sure you're not just horny? Like, I, I, I sense a pleasing aura around you. Here's my they, number. Yeah, <laughs> they fell into so, a certain type. And yeah. uh, I was far from that type. And uh, so some part of me feels like she was full of shit. It's, it's sort of like that joke in, um, I don't know if it was Guardians of the Galaxy or one of those movies, but like there's an empath. Who, and somebody just explodes and he's like, ah, and, and she goes, I sense you're angry. And it's just like, <laughs> come on. Do you, do you remember which one that was? Because like, I've only watched, I think the first one, I, I, I've fallen off so hard with Marvel. I, I, I don't remember because I've seen them all and the, they got me through the first part of the pandemic on loop. So it's just like, they're all <laughs> one movie at this point, mentally. I mean, not, not, not to be this person, but they kind of are the same movie. Yeah, they're the same movie over and like, over again, but even together, they're just one movie. It's just yeah, like it. it it's so it's so samey, kind of. Yeah, it's I, I I had to stop watching them. I think after like the first and uh, like what was like the, the the first Infinity War movie. Um, I was just like, okay, I'm I'm done. <laughs> well, after they wrapped the wrapped it with Endgame, and then they had a Spider-Man movie after that. I felt like it. Okay, the story is as done as it's going to be. Well, and come now on, they're come on, setting up phase, another phase story. Phase one is done, or Fa- phase well, two, or we're on whatever. like four or five or something yeah. like that. But the phases are done, and now we're on a different phase with different characters. 
And so far, I'm not that invested. Like, I'm yeah. watching them because my girlfriend wants to watch them. You know, all the shows on Disney Plus and all that shit. But, like, I don't know. I just don't. They're not as yeah. exciting as I they mean, were do, initially. Do, do you think that, like, I, I think about this sometimes is, like, that whole idea of, the, like, the cinematic universe and having, like, all these interconnected projects. You know, I I feel like that is, it, it can be a big issue when it comes to story because I, I think you're 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 not really letting smaller stories be told and you know just sort of the pressure to connect every little thing i think over can make right. an overall weaker narrative as a result yeah i don't think they care uh, yeah as a disney stockholder i can tell you that the reports i get have no information at all about in any indication that they care they just are turning out product that's yielding a ton of money yeah, and um, that's really that's the formula that, that worked for a decade, and they're gonna try. It I've again. been saying that for years. It's just yeah, you know, Hollywood doesn't like like I, that's the biggest issue with Hollywood right now is that it, you know you you wonder why indie films are becoming more and more popular. It's because all the big studios just are just trying to invest in what is yeah. going to bring asses into the seats. Well, everybody you know? in charge, the bean counters, the executives, they don't come out of a passion for it. Yeah. No, Definitely. You know, I mean, they, it, yeah. So they don't know how to look at it. They don't know what to look for. The best produced films, uh, at least in terms of Hollywood, I'm not going to talk about the independence. Yeah. That all ended at the turn of the century for the most part. I mean, there were a few straggler Hollywood movies that came out that were interesting. But when you had actual filmmakers who were producing on a regular basis with their hands on, like Spielberg in the 80s and 90s was hands on producer for mm. some of these projects. And when you when you have producers who are filmmakers, that makes a world of difference. And when you have producers who can talk their their financial people off a ledge and say, just stay yeah. with me for a little bit, it'll be worth it. One of the filmmakers who's still working today who's really good at that is David Fincher. He's never had final cut on any of his projects. Really? Which is shocking. Yeah. But he knows how to talk with his financial people. He's like, uh, yeah. Trust me, it'll work. You know, that, and he just that, has that. I, I, that that's talent. like the biggest. That is the biggest issue I think maybe facing artists right now is like being able to sort of politic like that and you know to, to be able to talk the talk. Yeah, because like it, it's so easy to just want to go. You, you know, like, like there's this pressure right now to be on social media and to market yourself in all this. You know, in this special way, and it's, I, it's so like. It sucks because you, you like, I don't know about you, but I would rather be writing. I would rather be making stuff than getting into some flame war on Twitter. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not really even on Twitter. I'm holding an account with my handle, but I don't active, actively, I'm not on there because it's just such a poisonous environment. Oh, but... yeah. I I don't either. I mean, they, like I, um, you know, I, I, I was really struggling with that. I was just trying to, because like I, you know, I, I'm thinking about things like I am, I don't like. It's it's very tempting to want to go into academia or you know something like that, but I you know I I've seen people like Hollander and and David Ryan and just just get kind of chewed by the machine that yeah. is academia, and at the same time I don't really want to go into this commercial publishing world either because it just feels like you're kind of doing the same thing for different masters, right? Um, and so I'm just like okay I need to do my own thing, but the only way to do your own thing is to market yourself on social media. It feels like. 
and I'm like, okay, I. It's hard. I I, I just I just can't do that. Like I, I I just can't do that with myself. It, like yeah. I I just you know, social media is just so for me just depressing. Well, I have rules you know? because I hate it too, and it does affect the, psychologically. It's yeah. the most destructive thing that my generation has invented. It's horrible. Yeah. We should be embarrassed by it. But my rules are simple. Twitter is a no go. I'll hold yeah. the tight the Eric Norcross pod. I'm just holding the name for now. Maybe it'll improve, but I doubt it. Um, it's one of those things where, like, has anybody figured out that you can't sway elections by bitching on Twitter? No? Okay. <laughs> but you're going to keep trying anyway. Um, that's Twitter to me. And then there's Facebook, which is just like if you build a page to try to get fans, they won't show it unless you pay for promotion. So that's dead. Yeah. So I don't put energy into that. Um, I With Facebook, my rule is if I don't know you personally, you're not a friend. And I limit it to no more than 75 people. I can't keep track of more than 75 people. Isn't and that how, like statistic that, that you, you can only... I don't know, like but so that people. just seems to be where I start losing it. But I keep I manage to keep it under because I have very strict rules. One, if mm. you're not using it to keep in touch with me, there's no reason for us to be connected. Or if you post a rude comment, even if it's joking, I don't want somebody teaching a person that anybody else on it that they can post rude comments and that I won't do anything about it. Yeah. I had this guy I grew up with post a snarky comment. I, he meant it in fun, but I'm like, look, I can't have you telling other people that it's okay to, to post stuff like that. I don't like it. It's public. It's rude. I get it because I know you and I know your personality. But when you read it without that context, it looks like I'm letting you talk shit to me. Yeah. So I deleted it and I said, look, let's just text. And so we just text and we're not connected on there. So when it comes to Facebook, it's very strict. And that all goes back to a, a production where um, it was a bad business deal and I had a lot of people that my producers owed money to and they were using my Facebook to track my mood so that they could tap me and be like, hey, what's the status with this? And, I'm, and so I'm like, you know what? Only people that, one, I'm not in business with and two, uh, that are true friends and are in regular contact with me are on my Facebook. So with that, I'm able to keep Facebook out of my mainstream life because mm. there's only a handful of people that contact me on there. I only have like 46 connections at this point. Yeah. Um, with LinkedIn, that's strictly business. That's how I get client work. Yeah. That's how I get in touch with recruiters and connect with past clients and, and just say, hey, from a professional standpoint, here's what I'm doing. My podcast always gets blasted to LinkedIn because that's where a lot of downloads come from, especially the entrepreneur episodes. Mm. If there's anything remotely entrepreneurially related, LinkedIn is the go-to for that. Um, but the one I'm really focusing hard on is YouTube. I want that shit to work. And I'm slowly growing it. Like I had less than 50 followers last year. I'm now at 182. Yeah, and I'm that's... I'm getting about three or four a week, um, which is really steady and yeah. um, exciting. And I know that 182 isn't a lot in the in the YouTube sphere, but yeah. for me, it's it's an achievement because I'm legit working for it. 
And yeah. I have a philosophy about that too. Is like after a certain point, it'll grow exponentially, and then I don't have to work for them anymore because they'll just come. The algorithm yeah. will end up serving me. But the first five hundred, I'm going to be working my ass off to get those. And for sure, that's where I'm really cur- curating content, I'm scheduling everything for weekly releases, because I'm I'm learning the algorithm, and I can choose how personal to get. Yeah. The version of me on here is very much me. I'm giving you everything I want to be in my life. I want to be a guy who just talks about art, occasionally puts it up. My content is incredibly diverse. You'll have me reading verse that I write, which isn't that interesting and they get no views, but <laughs> the idea is, is me. This channel is me. Yeah. My short and experimental films, which will get views, but then they'll also get really shitty comments from people. <laughs> which is fine. It's part of the discourse. And then there's the podcast, which is basically a stand-in for the fact that we haven't been able to go to film festivals or to art gallery openings or to pubs to hear people read, which is where I would normally have these conversations. Yeah. But it turns out I like it. And so I'm probably going to keep doing it regardless. Because um, if there's one thing I like better than creating art is talking about it. Yeah, same same here. I I'm totally with you there. I mean, that's that was always the best thing about grad school for me was being able to talk to people like you, like David, like you know a lot of the other people I knew there, you know, and just to have these conversations about things. That's you know, I I think I said this at the beginning of of this podcast. It's just I need community, you know, yeah. and I need the right community for me. Have and, you? Hey, I mean, have you? You, you you say you're struggling with social media though. I'm interested in um, what well, out of all of them is there anyone you would think about focusing more on? I mean, well, you already I, have a podcast. Yeah, well, that that podcast is more like I don't know. I, that's just like a fun thing me and my friend do. We just talk about music every week and stuff, and talk yeah. about books about music and you know, all that nerdy nerdy shit. Um, I usually like so. I, it's funny. A couple of years ago, I actually deleted everything on my Facebook. Like it took me three or four hours to do, but mm-hmm. I deleted. So I like, if you were able to even find me on Facebook, I would just be a blank profile basically that I just keep it up for messenger and stuff like that. Just because, you know, you, you have relatives who you don't have their phone numbers. You kind of need that. Yeah. Um, but I was doing Reddit for a while. I really didn't like Reddit. It felt like it was pretty negative um, after a while. I mean, which, you know social media in general so i i you know i ended up leaving that but what i'm trying to do now i um so i have a website that finally went up this week uh with my own domain finally i've been working on it since like august um so I'm, i'm hoping to sort of you know be able to put my work there but also be able to talk about it and like talk about the process behind it um, cause I think that's a really important part that doesn't get talked about a lot, but I think on top of that, there's a, uh, there's a great music community that I really want that, that, that I really like that it's just full of really nice people. It's called, uh, lines. Um, I, I could spill out the URL, but it's nuts. It's like five L'sco or something like that. It's, you can it's, email at me. Email yeah. Me. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great thing. You know, like I just, the people there are just super nice. It just feels like a real community there. Um, but I think more than that, I, 
I mean, as like I'm I'm in New Hampshire right now, you know, but I'm looking to get out um, because I I need to be in person with people, you know. And I mean, thankfully things are opening up, and you know that's that's the thing I think I need more than anything because this conversation that we're having feels more real than pretty much any interaction I've ever had on Reddit. So, <laughs> well, Reddit is a shithole. Yeah, um, but 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 you know, it, it's just like even like an email can be really great to interact with somebody to an extent. But it's still nothing compared to actually having a conversation with somebody. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what I really need. I like and you know, a lot of the people who have inspired me the most have been these, you know, are part of these massive, you know, communities that are, you know, doing amazing experimental work. And that's those are the type of people that I need to rub elbows with. You know. Um, so where are you thinking about going? I don't know. I'm I'm thinking about coming, going back to New York, actually. Um, that's where it's that, at. Yeah, see, that I'm starting to think that um, because, I mean, it, it's it's weird, but I, I kind of want to hang out more with, like, musicians than writers in in some ways. Um, I, rec- I recommend that, actually. Yeah. Never, never hang out with the people who do what you do. Oh, it's it, it, it's not that, like, because <laughs> the, there are writers that I really like, that I love talking to. I mean, like, like this is a good example of that. Um it's more just like I I find music to be just so fascinating and just, you know, it's something that, that's inspired me just so much since I was, you know, a teenager, you know. And so I like that's the kind of world that I really vibe with a lot you know more. Who than... I, think, I, I think you would have loved taking a, uh, a class with Jake Slichter. I was just going to say, yeah, I, um, <laughs> that, that, that was one of the classes I missed out on. Cause I, 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 I talked to him for a little bit and he was just one of the nicest guys and just really, he got it. Like, you know, that's, yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I, I like talking to writers. Um, it's just, I think a lot of them are kind of have like that literary mindset that you know is is kind of like like philosophy conceptual uh you know ideas above the actual writing or you know you on the other side of the spectrum you have those you know sort of the more genre writers who were like i need to get published and you need you need to listen to you need to read my seven volume space opera um and you know (laughs) All due respect to both of those people, it's just that I I often feel like I don't belong in either of those worlds. So yeah, well, there's a well. The, I mean, with the liter, I know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about the literary people. Yeah, they love books more than the process, and yeah, that's fine if you're you know. But well, I I I meant more like you know, like I think a lot of them are you know, I, like especially if you go to like a lot of like postmodern writers, you know, mm. they're focused on you know semiotics and like you know, uh, you know, French cultural criticism and like the philosophy of language and all that stuff. And, and don't get me wrong. I find some of that to be very fascinating. It's just that like, oftentimes it feels like that takes over their entire writing. Like they, yeah. they don't really care. Like, like, like I've said, like it, it feels like they care more about what they write than how they write it. Yeah. No, I feel that. Yeah. And then what was the other one? It was, the other one was, um, it was like kind of like commercial, like commercial genre. publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Commercial. Yeah. That's just like, oh, you got an end goal. That's fine. But we can't have, we can't really have an in-depth conversation when really what you're uh, looking for is people to I, read seven volumes of a space well, opera. Well, like, like, I mean, the, okay, good example of why I need to get out of New Hampshire. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was before the pandemic. Um, I 
went to a writing group that was sort of local in my area. And I was, I was the youngest person by at least 20 years. Uh, mind you, I was probably like 26 or 27 at the time. <laughs> so, um, and all they talked about was NaNoWriMo, like pretty much the entire time. All they wanted to do was like, ask me if this was publishable or not. And, you know, I, yeah, it's just like, I, I admire the gusto to want to get published and the fact that they're even putting in, you know, the effort, but I, I, I feel like you're going, it, it's like, you, it's almost like you're going about it the wrong way that, you know, it, your work needs to stand on its own. You know, it's, it, it's not going to get published because it's publishable. If that makes any sense, it's well, going to be published because that, it's, because it's a strong piece of work. Yeah. In, the in my problem mind. though, is a lot of that is rooted in this unfortunate reality that there are certain tone maybe i'm I'm gonna put this very lightly tonal expectations so yeah you know i have the hardest time with literary journals for example i don't Mm. write any the way i write isn't what literary journals typically want (laughs) same here (laughs) And, and and that's the big worry with a lot of these people because a lot of them aren't interested in what their voice is. They're just interested in what will the editor at this particular literary journal want? Cause that's yeah. all I care about. And, and that's a problem too, is because you basically have these editors who are dictating what the accepted voice is for an entire medium. Yeah. And I don't, th- I think all writers should stop serving that to be totally honest. Yeah. I mean like, you know, it's, it's funny. I, you know, over like the last 10 years, you know, um, other mediums of art like music have been, you know, opened up and sort of the gatekeepers of that have been largely, um, you know, eliminated to an extent, um, you know, by the internet. And I've just, the same doesn't feel true for writing. You know, it, it, it feels just as hackneyed and, you know, sort of stayed in its own um, traditions, you know, that it, it always has been. And it's, it's, really frustrating because you know i i'm totally with you like i i don't want to serve this journal gatekeeper you know but i also don't want to serve you know sort of the academic gatekeeper either and so that's why like i finally i'm just like i'm just gonna like fuck it i'm gonna do my own thing i'm gonna just do my own website i don't really care what happens to it you know it's what's important to me is making it you know and that that then sharing it that's that's really it so. You should listen to the episode I did with Brian Birnbaum, who did he he's the founder of that press that published David. Yeah. Um he's, he talks about I grilled him extensively about how do you start a publishing company because he published his <laughs> own book. And I think it's worth it, not only for you, but for anybody who wants to do something truly true to their voice, uh, and not working for someone else. If you want to create something true to your voice and still make a living off of it, it's worth looking into how do you get it published without going through other people. He did that. Then he ended up publishing David's book. And I think that's remarkable that we live in an age where that's even possible. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, I I feel like I, I make like a million music analogies. It just brings me back to, you know, sort of, the hardcore punk movement of like the eighties where you had all these people just making zines and making record labels and just doing their own thing, just completely DIY. Like that's that, like that's one of those things that like, you know, say what you will about the internet. And like, I 
totally agree, you know, about the negatives, but like the positives are like things like that, that doing something yourself is a million times easier than it, than it ever has been. There's also a component that's so important is we get to keep ownership. Yeah. You know, yeah. own your negative, own your masters in the music industry to be masters in yeah. the film industry to be negative. Yeah, I guess in writing it would be manuscript and and you can own it and you don't have to forfeit that to somebody else because yeah, sure. that somebody else is going to pass it down to the next person who didn't earn it. Yeah. You know, I, I remember I mean, seeing this interview with this guy who from one of the major record labels and he was going through all these records. It was it's a YouTube video. If I ever find it, I'll send it to you. And he's like, yep, this these these this is all our back catalog. This pays my this is paying for my house. I'm paying my house off and it's all with this. And it's all other people's work. The guy didn't earn it. He just got promoted uh, to a position. And it's just like, if you can get that, take down that system, own oh, your negative, own your masters and, and have full control. That's the future of creativity, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the way it really should have always been. But, you know, but I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to take up any more of your, uh, too much of your time, but I, I think, you know, a big part of um, sort of getting to that mentality is, you know, accepting the fact that sort of the work that's going to come out as a result of independence will probably not be to sort of the level of polish, level of finish that we normally expected. You know, I, I think, you, you know, you started off, um, I think we were talking with David Hollander about that. You know, that, that episode was, a, you were talking about like how like a lot of into like uh self-published authors you know just there's a lack of polish with just their general work and i think that's just i i i think it's important to you know edit your stuff and you know to be ha to have it be as best as it can but i i, I think it's also important to note that i think if you ex if you want sort of more independence and more do-it-yourself type of mentality you're going to get an overall sort of dip in quality in some aspects. Right. So yeah. there, it, there, I have thoughts on that. And yeah. this comes down to a major shift. There needs to be a major shift in the way artists perceive themselves and go For about sure. their business. And that's that every single one of us needs to look, not ourselves, not, not just as artists, but we need to look at ourselves as entrepreneurs. And what would an entrepreneur do? If he was building a new space plane or a, a, a new sea-going vessel, he's not going to – he might do the basic design, right? He or mm. she uh, might do the basic design, but they're going to hire engineers to yeah. make sure that thing is safe and seaworthy. And they're going to hire other designers to come in and do the touch-ups. And you have to be willing to take an entrepreneurial approach and say, okay, I – wrote this whole manuscript now i need to bring on editors to you know before I, uh a few months ago i was submitting screenplays to these competitions which i don't really do i, I think they're silly but i was asked to do so by somebody and before you know i wrote the screenplay and before i sent it out though you know what i did i hired Rhea. do you remember Rhea? yeah yeah i hired her to do my editing and, it's, it's, it's funny because and, me, me, Mike, and Rhea actually used to room together. Oh, okay. Uh, Sarah Lawrence. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, and, and it was such an obvious thing. Like, 
I know I'm not going to be able to find the stuff because I wrote the thing and I could read it without really reading it, which is mm. half of the problem of being a writer. We know what we wrote. And so, you know, I just hired Rhea and she found so much shit that I, I didn't realize I was doing. Mm. And, and, and that's sort of the process. And it's not hard to hire an editor. <laughs> Yeah, and no, you it, can give it, them it, guidelines. It say, "I'm only looking for this for now," and then you do another phase where you're only looking for another thing, and create a production process so that you aren't publishing shit. It is so easy. I mean, I buy, dude. I am a sucker for buying self-published stuff. <laughs> if somebody says they're coming out with a new poetry book, I'll buy it. I got Ray's book on order right now, but like, here's the thing: so much of it is unedited, yeah. and it doesn't have to be. It's just. People don't think about what they're doing as an entrepreneurial endeavor. They're thinking about it as a purely creative endeavor. Oh, it's so pure. It's just straight from the word file. There you go. <laughs> and it's just like, it doesn't have to, you shouldn't ever look at anything that way. And initially, it's like I said, when I was showing you the notebook, the best part is making the notebook. Yeah. Everything else after that's production. Everything else after that's entrepreneurship. And if everybody can look at their process that way, then there's no reason in the world why we would need an industry to do all that work for us. Yeah, it, for sure. For sure. So, yeah. That's my preachy. <laughs> every, every episode has me preaching. I mean, I, I think that that's just like a part of having a podcast in some ways of, of just going like on like a little <laughs> rant for a little bit and just a, a jag, if you will. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.